0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Hosea, I need to uh, go to your uh, table of contents, or your index at the beginning to find Hosea. It's hidden a bit in the uh, minor prophets of the Old Testament, but uh, you'll find your way there. Hosea, you can turn to Hosea chapter 6. That's where uh, we'll sort of start this morning. As you're finding your way there, <clears throat> Uh, I'll confess something to you. I wore glasses this morning. You noticed that maybe. You don't normally see me wearing glasses. I thought, well, my contacts have been bothering my eyes. I'll wear glasses today and give them a break. It sounded like a great idea when I left the house this morning. But when I got here, uh, I realized uh, something that's kind of hard to swallow. And that's this. When I put my glasses on, I can see your shining faces beautifully. But what's in front of me on this pulpit is fuzzy all of a sudden. If I take my glasses off, this is crystal clear, and you're fuzzy. And so I've chosen for you to be fuzzy so that I can see what's in front of me this morning. Uh, This aging is not for the weak, is it? All right. Well, it's a joy this morning to be with you to worship, and we've come really on an exciting morning because we have the opportunity to share in the Lord's Supper together. It's always a joy uh, when we get to share in the Lord's Supper uh, as we stop and and pause from our normal rhythm and our normal routine to remember uh, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. So, in thinking about that uh, this week, and, and particularly toward the end of the week, I was planning. If you got the church newsletter this week, you saw that we were going to be in Luke chapter six. Well, that is what we were planning to do, but I pushed that to next week, and, uh, and and decided to go back to Hosea chapter six and uh, through chapter eight, really in preparation for the Lord's Supper this morning to 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 go back and reflect on this text and reflect on what was happening in Israel in this particular season of its life and to really examine our own hearts as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together today. So we are sort of a a little course correction change, but we will pick up with Luke 6 next Sunday morning. I want to read to you Luke chapter 22, verse 19, sort of as a way of jumping into this this morning. Uh, Luke records for us toward the end of his gospel these words. He says, And he, that's Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. When the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he told them very clearly the purpose of this gathering. It is the focal point of our worship this morning. We get to gather around the table and share a meal after the template of the Lord from recorded in Luke chapter 22. But he tells us there that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is very clear. The purpose is for us to gather and to do this together and to do it in remembrance of him. To do it as a means of remembering the Lord. That's its purpose in general, is so that we don't forget. It's to remind us about Christ and what he's done for us. It's to remind us about the gospel. And the reason that we do it is because the Lord knows that you and I are people who are prone to forget things. We're prone to forget what God has done for us in Christ. We're, we're prone to forget the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. We tend to forget that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We tend to forget that the Son of God stepped out of heaven and took on human flesh and lived among men and shed his blood for us and so we need to remember God's known this as a challenge for his people since the very beginning if you were to flip in your Bible all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 God speaks to his people Israel very early on in their time as a nation and he warns them of their potential to forget God he says to them these things beginning in verse 11 in Deuteronomy chapter 8 he says be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God it's a warning It's a warning. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large, and your silver and your gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power And the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God. For it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God. And you follow other gods. And you worship and bow down to them. I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. These are sobering words from the Lord, not to pagan nations, but to his people, to the people who claimed his name, to the people who worshiped him on a regular basis. Very sobering words. Do not forget the Lord. Don't forget him. There's a chance when you get into this promised land And you settle down and things go well for you, that you're going to increase in your wealth and you're going to increase in your material possessions. And all of a sudden, all of your desperate needs are going to subside. And the real temptation when that happens is that all of a sudden you forget the Lord your God. And there's a stern warning if that happens, if you forget Him, if you forget Him, you'll be destroyed. What things were they tempted to forget? Well, they were tempted to forget, according to that text, God's provision, the God who had delivered them out of Egypt, the God who had uh, led them through the desert, who had led them through venomous snakes and scorpions and all that we just read, the God who had provided miraculously, provided water out of a rock and had provided food miraculously by raining down manna on, on them from heaven, all these wonderful things the Lord did to provide their desperate needs and their, their journey through the desert, there's a temptation to forget that God had provided for them. There's going to be a temptation to forget God's protection, that they were in danger all the time, and, and the only reason they survived was because God had protected them, and they were tempted to forget God's sovereignty and his uniqueness. They were going to be tempted to forget to obey him, and that, that was a part of their love relationship with him. And in that text, he sort of lays out for us sort of the typical process of forgetting God. You know, he, he talks to them about a full stomach. You know, they get, they're no longer hungry, they get full. He talks to them about material wealth that they accumulate. And then he talks to them about the result of that being a sort of a, a, a personal pride that begins to now look in the mirror and, and look at the wealth and look at all the things that are going well in life and say, hey, I'm responsible for all of this. I've got these things because of me rather than the Lord. If you were to fast forward in your Bible from Deuteronomy into the Minor Prophets to the book of Hosea, you find that Israel is now a living and vivid illustration of the very thing that God warned them about in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Israel in Hosea's day was a nation that was diseased, Back when we taught through the Minor Prophets, we gave this disease a name. We called it Forgotten God Syndrome. It's what they had. The problem with Israel during Hosea's day was they had this disease, and they didn't know it. It was rotting away their nation. It was rotting away their souls, and they had no idea. God knew it. Hosea knew it. The signs and symptoms were all there from anybody from the outside who was looking with clear eyes to see. But Israel didn't see it. And so Hosea speaks to them on behalf of God in chapter 6 through 8 to expose them to the reality that they're a diseased nation who has done precisely what they were warned against in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He summarizes this in verse 14 of chapter 8 in Hosea, which tells us simply these words. For Israel has forgotten his maker. Those are dreadful words for a nation. Israel has forgotten his maker. Those are dreadful words to be spoken over the life of an individual. John has forgotten his maker. Michelle has forgotten her maker. Fill in the blank with anybody's name, even your own. The potential for that to happen in our lives is just as real as it was for Israel. Israel forgotten for God and its maker. In Hosea chapter 13 verse 6, there's a summary statement that sounds very much like a summary of Deuteronomy 8. It says this, it's God speaking, verse 6 of chapter 13. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then what happened? Can you say it with me? They forgot me. They forgot me. Precisely what God warned them against in Deuteronomy chapter 8 had now become the reality by Hosea's day. That pattern of progression from prosperity to pride to forgetfulness had played out in the life of Israel. And it can play out in your life and mine just the same. There's a real temptation in our lives as we become prosperous, to become prideful and to without even really recognizing it consciously, we begin to forget God. And we begin to get, begin to live our lives as though he has no role. It was a problem in Hosea's day and it's a problem that's dogged the church really, generation after generation since. If you go all the way to the end of the Bible and to to Revelation, the early chapters, the letters to the churches, you'll go back and you'll see that God is speaking to the churches and he's in in each case sort of giving some commendations and then some reprimands and in multiple cases of the churches the, the challenge is that they've forgotten things that they need to remember and he challenges them to remember the things that they've forgotten. I wish this disease was only an Old Testament problem and it wasn't a problem today. But I want you to look at the symptoms as we see them in Israel during Hosea's day. And I want you to examine your own hearts because the New Testament calls us as believers as we approach the Lord's table to examine our hearts and to not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And what I take that to mean is in a manner where we overlook sin and we don't take seriously the gospel we're to examine ourselves to make sure that we're not harboring known sin in our lives and desecrating the Lord's table. And so I want us to look at just briefly at the symptoms of this forgotten God syndrome that we saw rampant in Israel during this season and make sure those symptoms aren't prevalent in our own lives as we prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning. And if they are, my prayer is that, it, that God would draw us to repentance that we might take the Lord's Supper afresh and anew as a new start. Well, we haven't been studying the Minor Prophets. We haven't been studying Hosea. So just as a a moment of of context, um, in the book of Hosea, God's got a problem with with his nation. And we've already established what that problem is. But in in chapter 4, verse 1 of Hosea, we read this. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. God's got a controversy with his people. He's unhappy with his people. They're not in the place they ought to be. They've, they've turned away from him in a number of different ways, and they've forgotten him. And his patience is about come to an end. This message from Hosea to them, from him, is really sort of a last chance opportunity. God is about to bring the heat onto this nation. The heat of judgment is about to come in some very vivid and painful ways. But God is giving them a last warning through this prophet. And so it's in the context of that that we find sort of God laying out for them some of the symptoms of their forgotten God syndrome. And the first symptom that we see here is what I'm just calling a fading love. A fading love. In chapter 6, verse 4, here's what we read. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Ephraim is a, 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 a phrase that's used to refer to the whole nation in this context. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. They had a problem. Their, their love for God was fading. It wasn't what it once was. There was a time when, when they, their, their love for God was, was, was bright hot, where they felt it in the core of their being, and they lived a life that reflected a genuine love and passion for, for the God who had, had protected them and provided for them and, and miraculously done all of these things for them in the past. But what's happened is that love is now faded and god describes their current love for him like a morning cloud or a dew that goes away early and if you've watched morning clouds and you've watched the dew you understand that that illustration very vividly those are things that appear for just a minute but they dissipate relatively quickly and God is saying to his people, that's what your love for me is like. It, it only appears for a minute, and then it dissipates. It's temporary at best. He's saying to them, you might occasionally show what, what resembles love for me, but it quickly vanishes. It doesn't last. It isn't genuine. Your love is faded to the point where it almost doesn't exist anymore. And it's important to note that God's people during this season had not abandoned God completely. They still worshipped every week. They still came to the temple and they still offered their sacrifices. They still had an emotional attachment to the God of their fathers. And they still went through all of the rituals of worship. Perhaps like many in our day who consider themselves Christians and and just go to church maybe because their parents or their, their grandparents did, it's just a, a ritual habit that they continue to do, absent any true love for God. But God's people in Hosea's day, that's what they were doing. They were, they were still worshipers of Jehovah. They were still worshiping, and they were still coming, and they were still singing, and they were still gathering, and they were still offering the sacrifices. But they were doing it out of a heart that was absent any real love for God. Their love had faded away like the morning mist. It was no longer relevant. The Bible makes clear from cover to cover that if we truly love God, that the way that's most reflected in our lives is in a life that's lived in obedience to him. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says very clearly, if you love me, you will keep my what? My commandments. There's a, a direct connection between love for God and keeping his commandments. People who genuinely love God seek to obey Him, want to honor Him with their lives, and they want to do what's right in His eyes, and they're broken when they don't. In John chapter 14, verse 23 and 24, Jesus answers and says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words genuine love shows up uh, in a lifestyle of obedience to claim to love God and to live a life of outright rebellion against God in our works is to live a lie and that's the lie that Israel was living in Hosea's day we won't take the time to track it all through these two chapters but if you read through these chapters on your own you'll see a list of the kinds of behaviors that they're displaying on a regular basis robbery and murder and mayhem lying and theft adultery and all sorts of other sexual sins. I mean listen to how that's described in chapter seven, verse four. They're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of dough until it's leavened. That may be an obscure sort of illustration, but what God is saying to him is they're 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 burning underneath the surface with with illicit lust like a like an oven that's 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 smoldering and burning just waiting for something to stoke it so that it can burst out into full flame they're living their lives in outright lust and sexual sin and adultery and rebellion ignoring their wedding vows and just uh, this lust that was constantly smoldering in them waiting for some someone or something to stoke it and give it an opportunity to burst forth into action They were making idols, worshiping idols. All of these things were part of, of, of how the nation of God who claimed God is their God were living in their lives. And the way that they were living was a clear, be, a clear betrayal of what was really going on in their heart. They no longer loved God like they once did. Their love had faded. It had faded, and it was visible. And even in their worship, any claimed love for God was really just a sham. It wasn't real. You know, one of the things that separates true biblical Christianity uh, from other religions is love for God. At the heart of Christianity is we are a people who love God. We're a people who love God. We're not just just blind followers who live in fear and we just do right things because we're living in fear that our God is going to zap us with a lightning bolt. Christianity is built off of a heart of love for God, genuine love for God that shows up in a life that reflects that. It's not about doing certain actions to appease God's anger. It's not about doing rituals and ceremonies and externals. It's a major contrast with the false gods of Israel, I mean, of of Hosea's day. Faithfulness to Jehovah God is based on a love for him, That's the bottom line. In Matthew 22, verse 35 and following, Matthew records this. He says, one of them, these are the religious leaders who had gathered, a lawyer asked him a question, him being Jesus, to test him. Teacher, what is the the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, and all the prophets. When Jesus was asked, what does it all boil down to? He says, it all boils down to love God and love people as a reflection of that. And God comes to his people and he says, you know what, I have, I have a controversy with you. And it begins at this point. You used to love me with a burning love that was real and genuine and it was evident in the way that you conducted yourself in the world, but that love is faded. It's faded. You're still doing all the same things you were doing before ritually, but your love is faded. It's not what it once was. One of the symptoms of forgotten God syndrome, that we've forgotten him, and that we need to remember is that our love is faded. As we think about coming before the Lord's table this morning, what about you in your life? When you take an honest look at your heart and your genuine love for God, is there, is there is there is there evidence that your love for God has faded in some way? Can you look back and say, you know, there was a time when my love for God and my passion for worshiping him and for his word and for obeying him was hot and it was real and I felt it at the very core of my being and I lived it throughout the week but now it's not like that things have faded I've drifted I still go to church I still pick up the Bible and read it occasionally maybe I still pray some but my love has faded if that's true this morning then look at yourself it's possible that you're infected with the same thing that infected God's people in Hosea's day this forgotten God syndrome you need to repent and remember. A second problem that they had that was part of God's controversy with them was in verse 6 of chapter 6 and we'll just call it empty worship. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And then in chapter 8, verse 13, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. So this is actually related to the first. When our love begins to fade, our worship gets corrupted. And so that is exactly what had gone on here. There there, there are two issues, but they're related. Their love is faded. Now their worship is corrupt. It's empty. They're just going through motions. They're coming and they're offering sacrifices and they're doing all of these things. But God is reminding them, it's not the outward things that are the heart of the matter. It's your love for me. And so now that your love has faded, all of your rituals are really just a waste of time. I don't accept them, he says. I don't accept them. You can offer all the sacrifices you want, but I don't accept them. You can sing all the songs you want, but I don't accept them. You can gather and go through all the rituals you want to, but they don't please me. And they don't because it's empty. It's empty of love. It's just going through the motion. He's saying saying to them, in in essence, I I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. I don't want your, your burnt offerings. I want you to know me and to love me. And all of those things are important, but they're only important in the context of love for me. When you remove that, then your worship is just empty, and it's not doing anybody any good. The scriptures address this issue of empty worship and God's utter contempt for it all throughout. Another example would be Amos chapter 5, verse 21, where God speaks in even more vivid language. He says this to the people of Israel in that day. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I won't listen. So much for the idea of just getting brownie points for showing up, right? And that's, that's vivid language from God to his people. Your worship is so empty. I don't receive it. I mean, it literally says, take away from me the noise of your songs. Your songs, your singing, if you think you're getting brownie points by just gathering and singing, your, your songs are just noise. They're noise. They're noise because your heart is not with me. It's not for me. Psalm 51, verse 16 and following. For you will not delight in sacrifice, the psalmist writes, or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Listen, friends, God's delight is not in our ceremonies or our liturgies any more than they were in Israel's and Hosea's day. God's delight is in the heart of the worshiper who comes before him with a broken and contrite heart. to come to God with a broken heart to come to God with a contrite heart to come to God with a a heart of love for Him is, is to find Him it's to see Him it's to savor Him in the midst of worship and that comes as a genuine result of genuine love for Him but to come to God in worship as a heartless ritual is to waste your time it's to dishonor God and He'll hide Himself from you That's another one of those symptoms that's painful and hard to diagnose in our life, isn't it? It's hard to diagnose and it's hard to admit when our love is faded. But what about empty worship? That's another symptom. Maybe you found yourself in that position before where you, you find yourself gathering with God's people and you sing the songs, but it's just songs. Just kind of going through the motion, but it never connects to the heart bow your head for the prayers and maybe you say something maybe you don't in your heart to the Lord you listen to the, to the sermon and maybe you think oh that's interesting or that was a funny story or that, that was a, a, a interesting point but it never penetrates to the heart you're never drawn to repentance or to fresh love for God or to any sort of genuine response to the word of God it's just sort of an empty experience. Maybe that's you this morning, frankly. If that's you, perhaps it's a sign of forgotten God syndrome. Maybe like Israel, in Hosea's day, you've forgotten God, and you need to remember him this morning. You need to remember afresh what God has done for you in Christ. Christ in a few moments we'll gather and share the Lord's Supper together and give you that opportunity to remember afresh and anew. There's a final thing I'll mention in Hosea as far as symptoms of forgotten God syndrome in seven, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. We're just going to call it sinful presumption. Again, it's related to the other two symptoms. God speaks and he says, when I would heal Israel, the the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely the thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. Here's the point. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. They do not consider that I remember, remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them and they are before my face. What a sad picture of a people that identify with God. Their love is faded. Their worship is now empty. And they're living with this sort of sinful presumption that just because they're Israel, that they can live however they want to live, and all they have to do is show up and offer sacrifices and God's somehow obligated to forgive them. They're living outright sinful, rebellious lives, and they think God doesn't see. They think they can live however they want to, and just get away with it, simply because they identify with God. There's no sense of repentance. There's no genuine sorrow for their sin. All they have to do is bring sacrifices and go through the ritual, and now God's uh, obligated to forgive them and to overlook their sin. James Boyce says one of sin's tragedies is that it causes us to think it can be hidden. One of sin's tragedies is that it causes us to think it can be hidden. That is one of Satan's best strategies, is to come alongside us and to to tempt us and to whisper into our conscience, mind, just do it. Nobody will ever see. Nobody will ever know. God isn't going to sweat the stuff like this. Why is it that people think they can hide their sin from God? Is it because God often withholds his judgment in the moment? Is it because God doesn't zap us the moment we sin every time and so we can easily sin and and, and feel like we get away with it and so that leads to another sin and begin to feel like we get away with it and we do it long enough that we begin to establish a pattern and all of a sudden, somewhere in the back of our minds, we begin to think, hey, God's not sweating this stuff. Maybe he doesn't see. He's not paying attention. Maybe I can just get away with it. That's exactly how the Israelites are acting. They're living in all sorts of outright sin, and they're acting like God doesn't see, like God doesn't care, like he isn't paying attention. And God God reminds them, they do not consider that I remember all their evil. I remember it all. Their deeds surround them, even though they think they're getting away with it. In Second Peter chapter three, Peter writes Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they'll say, Where is the promise of his coming? That's the Lord's second coming. For ever since their fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. Skipping down to verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfil his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Do you understand that the reason God doesn't zap you every time you sin, the reason that God is patient with you and with me as we disobey him, the reason that he doesn't judge us in the moment and instantly condemn our souls to hell is because he's being patient with us. He's exercising divine patience. He's not ignoring our sin. He's not out to lunch and not paying attention. It's an expression of his goodness and his kindness and his love that he's patiently awaiting our repentance, giving us an opportunity to repent. Israel has forgotten that. They think he's not paying attention at all. They think his slowness to judge means he doesn't care and doesn't remember. But the opposite is true. He sees it all. He remembers it all. And he's storing up judgment for the day of judgment. Matthew Henry writes this. It's catchy. I wish I could come up with catchy, smart stuff like this. He says, Preservations from present judgments, if a good use be not made of them, are but reservations for greater judgments. You might have to read that one twice, but it's really profound. If we don't make use of the fact that God's preserving us right now from judgment, all we're doing is making a reservation for worse judgment. Their deeds surround them. I remember all their evil. This is one of the symptoms of forgotten God syndrome. A good symptom that we've forgotten God and we need to remember is that we're living our lives with a sinful presumption that we can do whatever we want and get away with it. That it doesn't really matter to God. That he'll just overlook it as long as we go to church and as long as we do the things. James Boyce writes this. He says, we're never in greater danger than when we assume that he will always forgive us as long as we go through the outward forms of repentance. It's forgotten God's syndrome. That's a little piece of it in Hosea. People have forgotten God. They've forgotten him and they were in danger of his judgment. It showed up in their life by a love that's faded, by a worship that once was bright and hot and real and genuine and now it's empty. And it shows up in a life that, that previously was devoted to faithfulness to him that's now slipped into a pattern of just sinfulness, presuming that it's okay, that they're getting away with it, that God doesn't care. This morning, we're preparing to gather around the Lord's table. And we're gathering around it for the express purpose of remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. Remembering what he did for us on the cross. Remembering that the Son of God came and he died in our place. That he took the penalty of our sin upon himself the wages of our sin which is death credited to him our death he dies so that his life we can live we're called to remember him this morning and we're getting ready to do that now But before we do that I want to pause and just ask you to reflect on your own heart and your own life are there signs of forgotten God syndrome in your heart are there signs that your love for God is faded are there signs that your worship is shifting into this zone of just being sort of empty ritual are there is there evidence that you're just sort of living in this sinful presumption now and not in a zone of repentance I want to ask you just to bow your heads and to close your eyes for just a moment And I want you just to spend 30 seconds or a minute just reflecting on that and asking the Holy Spirit to to show you if you've forgotten God in these ways. The right response, if you see this in your life, is to identify it, to confess it to the Lord, to turn from it, in repentance and to ask him to help you get back to where you once were. His message to his people in Hosea's day was simply this, return to the Lord your God. Return. Lord Jesus, as we as we reflect on just this little moment in the life of Israel we examine our own hearts before you we recognize that we're we don't have a built-in immunity to this disease that just as they were prone to forget you we are too and Lord as we examine our lives in 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 view of some of these symptoms that we saw in Israel back in those days I pray that by your spirit you would show us the truth of where we stand with you that we wouldn't be deceived that we wouldn't believe we are what we're not but that we would have clear eyes to see where we are Lord for those whose love has faded Lord I pray that you would reignite their love for you Lord Jesus today afresh and anew That as we share this meal together, they would look upon the cross and see your blood running down, shed for them. They would see the price of their sin on display. And the stripes on your body. And the crown on your head. And the nails in your wrists. and that you would reignite their love afresh and anew as they remember you. For those, Lord, who, who, whose worship has been empty, I pray, Lord, that as we share this meal and they remember you, your body and your blood, as they remember that what the blood of bulls and goats could never do, your blood shed for them was able to do that you would stoke worship afresh and anew in their hearts, that it would come alive again. Lord, if as, they, as we examine ourselves, we find that we're living in presumptuous sin. We're not living in repentance. believing that our sin doesn't matter that Lord as we remember you as we remember the cross this morning draw us to repentance help us to see that every single sin matters to you that everyone nailed you to the cross and required you to die in our place and Lord make us repentant people Lord, we're not perfect people. We know that, Lord. We're not perfect. We fall and we stumble and we fail. But we know in those moments, Lord, that you'll forgive us. But we don't live in presumption. We never get comfortable in that zone. Give us broken and contrite hearts this morning, as a psalmist wrote. Lord Jesus, help us to see you afresh and anew and remember what you've done for us as we share this meal together. For we pray it in your holy name. Amen.